Welcome to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History, where we put the pedal to the metal when it comes to uncovering the forbidden and the suppressed. This is Michael Hoffman. Thank you for joining me today. I welcome you to this broadcast of Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History, which is copyright 2023, all rights reserved. You can find us on the internet at www.revisionisthistory.org. And we also have a Substack column, which you can access and read simply by going to a search engine and typing Michael Hoffman's Revelation of the Method Substack. I repeat, if you would like to read our Substack columns online, go to your search engine and type in Michael Hoffman's Revelation of the Method Substack, and you should be able to find us from there. Today's topic is the Morgenthau-Roosevelt Plan, New Documentation on the Notorious Scheme to Ethnically Cleanse Post-War Germany. This broadcast is brought to you thanks to the donations from Truth Seekers and the sale of our books, newsletters, and recordings. President Franklin D. Roosevelt and his Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau Jr., intended to target millions of German civilians for displacement and death. New facts have come to light on the extent of this duo's merciless post-war blueprint. Now keep in mind as we proceed through this material that Adolf Hitler's infamous Vernichtung speech in the Reichstag on January 30, 1939 pledged the annihilation or Vernichtung of the Jews if international finance Jewry succeeded in instigating a war. And the tyrant Hitler's statement is justly notorious. Those were evil words that he spoke, and it was a warrant for genocide. Period. However, while Churchill and Roosevelt were planning something similar, this has not received the publicity or the notoriety that it deserves. Churchill and Roosevelt's insinuation of the extermination of the German people, and what is worse, their implementation of that objective through the instrument of their air forces, is a fact entirely absent from the history of World War II. I quote, We have got to be tough with Germany, the president, that is Franklin D. Roosevelt, said, and I mean the German people, not just the Nazis. You either have to castrate the German people, or you have got to treat them in such a manner so that they can't just go on reproducing people who want to continue the way they have in the past. End quote from Franklin D. Roosevelt. That's the same thing as Adolf Hitler's Vernichtung speech of January 30th, 1939. This is Roosevelt saying the same thing about German civilians that Hitler was saying about Judaic civilians. Roosevelt says, we've got to be tough with Germany, and I mean the German people, not just the Nazis. Those are Roosevelt's words. He said, you either have to castrate the German people 
or you have to treat them in such a manner that they can't go on reproducing. Ladies and gentlemen, that's genocide. And we obtain that quote from Andrew Mayer's important new biography of Henry Morgenthau entitled Morgenthau, Power, Privilege, and the Rise of an American Dynasty that was published by Random House in 2022 and the quote appears on pages 386 and 387, period. And now what's interesting about Mayer, and you pronounce, you spell his name M-E-I-E-R, is that he is an enthusiast for Henry Morgenthau, but he has had the integrity to include, although it often doesn't appear in the index of the book, some of the more controversial, and indeed, in my opinion, felonious statements and views of Morgenthau. So that, obviously, Mayer, in his book Morgenthau, Power, Privilege, and the Rise of an American Dynasty, aspired to produce a documentary record of Morgenthau concerning his life, and that's why it's so valuable. Okay. The Holocaust is considered a unique horror because civilians of a particular ethnicity were singled out for deportation and death. Among the heroes of that chronicle are President Franklin D. Roosevelt and his Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, Jr., who singled out civilians of a particular ethnicity, and that is Germans, for deportation and death. Now, the Babylonian Talmud is the begetter of this two-tiered double standard, a moral and legal system that favors the abundant-souled holy people and disfavors the women, children, and non-combatant men of the races considered nefesh-deficient, and nefesh is spelled N-E-F-E-S-H, nefesh-deficient in other words, possessing a half-formed soul. Germans, Japanese, Iraqis, Lebanese, and Palestinians are the leading examples of this derogation in wartime. Unfree American blacks in antebellum America were the most egregious peacetime example of the dehumanization. Roosevelt would seek closure by sharing, along with Britain, Winston Churchill's goal of the mass murder of civilians, which is something we covered in a previous podcast, and the text of that is also published in our Revisionist History newsletter, number 122. The American participation in the incineration of the city of Dresden in 1945 was a spectacular castration. Franklin Roosevelt's goal of rendering the German people incapable of reproducing themselves was a result of propaganda of the type Daniel Jonah Goldhagen presented in his book, Hitler's Willing Executioners. Goldhagen pinned a criminal stigma on German women, children, and elderly men and instilled in their children and grandchildren self-loathing so that they just can't go on reproducing which is what has occurred, though none dare call it genocide by propaganda. 
Churchill and Roosevelt were intent on a devastating, exterminating, those are Churchill's words, devastating, exterminating, terror bombing of all German cities of any significance. Six months prior to the Royal Air Force and the U.S. Army Air Force burning 125,000 German civilians alive in Dresden, Franklin Roosevelt sent a memorandum to Secretary of War Henry Stimson dated August 26, 1944, and we quote, It is, of course, of the utmost importance that every person in Germany should realize that this time Germany is a defeated nation. The fact that they are a defeated nation, collectively and individually, must be so impressed upon them. Too many people here and in England hold to the view that the German people as a whole are not responsible for what is taking place. That, unfortunately, is not based on fact. The German people as a whole must have it driven home to them that the whole nation has been engaged in a lawless conspiracy against the decencies of modern civilization. End quote from Franklin Roosevelt in his memorandum to Secretary of War Henry Stimson. And that's dated August 26, 1944. Well, meanwhile, Roosevelt's Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau Jr., had devised a barbaric plan in the same month of August 1944. This was his obsession with, quote, removing all industry from Germany and simply reducing them to an agricultural population of small landowners. Secretary of Defense Henry Stimson said that would, in effect, return Germany to 1860 when she had only 40 million people. You might take a lot of people out of Germany, he said. Morgenthau was blunt in reply. Well, that is not nearly as bad as sending them to the gas chambers. End quote. As Labor Day 1944 approached, Morgenthau ordered Harry White to rush an early draft of the Treasury's proposal what would become infamously known as the Morgenthau Plan. The memorandum called for destroying Germany's military plants, for the Allies to take control of the industries in the Ruhr and Rhineland, and for resettling those Germans displaced in the process. On September 2nd, Morgenthau handed Roosevelt the draft proposal, six typewritten pages which included a total ban on German aircraft of any kind, not even a glider, no one should be allowed to wear a uniform, and a ban on marching and parades. Morgenthau, in his conversation with Roosevelt, expanded further on the vengeance he wanted the U.S. to implement on the civilian population, and we quote, I would like to see the industrial Ruhr region, and Ruhr is spelled R-U-H-R, Ruhr region, to be completely dismantled and the machinery given to those countries that might need it. I realize this would put 18 or 20 million German people out of work. End quote. Now that is a dreadful statistic. And yet, the much-ballyhooed humanitarian so-called First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt was in complete agreement. Concerning the Ruhr, she said, quote, put the thing under lock and key and shut it down completely. Now here is Morgenthau speaking to Roosevelt's aides when he declared, quote, The only thing you can sell me, or I will have any part of, is the complete shutdown of the Ruhr. Just strip it. I don't care what happens to the population. 
I would take every mine, every mill, and factory and wreck it. I am not going to budge an inch. Sure, it's a terrific problem. Let the Germans solve it. Why the hell should I worry about what happens to their people? Asked about a force expulsion of the German civilians from the Ruhr, Morgenthau replied, Whether it is 1 million, 10 million, or 20 million, it has been done. If you can move a million, you can move 20 million. They have asked for it. I don't want these beasts to wage war. I don't know any way than to go to the heart of the thing, which is the Ruhr, and I am not going to be budged. I can be overruled by the president, but nobody else is going to overrule me. End quote from Roosevelt's Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, Jr. Secretary of War Stimson stated in writing that Morgenthau, quote, is so biased by his Semitic grievances that he really is a dangerous advisor to the president at this time, end quote. On September 9th, Stimson submitted a memo to Franklin Roosevelt stating that if Morgenthau's vengeance scheme were to be imposed, it would, quote, breed war, not peace. It would arouse sympathy for Germany all over the world. It would destroy resources desperately needed for the reconstruction of Europe, end quote. Morgenthau was so influential that Roosevelt scheduled a meeting on the Morgenthau plan in Quebec with himself in attendance, along with Morgenthau, as well as Roosevelt's chief of staff, Admiral Lee, and British leaders Winston Churchill, Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden, and Lord Cherwell, for whom we had much to say in our podcast on Churchill and also in our Revisionist History newsletter, number 122, that you can access at our website, revisionisthistory.org. Reporting the Quebec meeting in a narrative vacuum without mention of the terror bombing which Churchill and Churwell were inflicting on Germany's civilian population during the time of the Quebec meeting, which was September 1944, Morgenthau biographer Andrew Mayer states that Churchill and Churwell were opposed to Morgenthau's plan on humanitarian grounds. Well, Mr. Mayer must be a comedian. He expects us to believe these two mass murderers were soft-hearted. Roosevelt, however, who was also a party to the firebombing of German cities, was made of sterner stuff. He said it would be no undue hardship to require Germany to revert towards the agricultural state such as she had enjoyed up to the end of the last century. In the end, Churchill came around, signing an agreement stating that after Germany's surrender, the Allies should eliminate industry in the Saar and the Ruhr, converting Germany into a country primarily agricultural and pastoral in character. And those were Roosevelt's direct quote from him. Concerning Morgenthau, Anthony Eden fumed in his diary over this German Jew's bitter hatred of his own land. And quote, in a foreign office memo, Eden wrote, quote, Morgenthau's interference is a piece of gratuitous impertinence. These ex-Germans seems to, seem to wash away their ancestry in a bath of hate. I repeat, this is a quote from Anthony Eden. These ex-Germans seem to wish to wash away their ancestry in a bath of hate. End quote. 
Stimson, recalling the harsh Roman terms imposed on a defeated Carthage, wrote, quote, I have yet to meet a man who is not horrified with the Carthaginian attitude of the treasury. It is Semitism gone wild for vengeance, and if it is ultimately carried out, it is sure that fate will lay the seeds for another war in the next generation. On September 21st, the secret Morgenthau-Roosevelt deal in Quebec to harm German civilians after Germany surrendered was leaked to a Stalinist sympathizer, the nationally syndicated American columnist Drew Pearson, perhaps with the expectation that Americans seethed with as much hatred for the German people as the President and his Secretary of the Treasury. If so, the calculation was a blundering misreading of the American mood in late 1944. In New York, journalist Arthur Kroc sarcastically asked if Morgenthau had replaced Cordell Hull as Secretary of State. Drew Pearson reported that when FDR discovered that Stimson had begun to adopt a plan for feeding the Germans at the end of the war, he blew up and in a fierce retort declared, Feed the Germans? I'll give them three bowls of soup a day with nothing in them. That's a quote from the Washington Post, September 21, 1944, page 9. Secretary of the Interior Harold Aix believed that Roosevelt's statement tantamount to urging the starvation of German survivors of the forthcoming Allied victory would be seen as very bad politically and that Morgenthau's notoriety would only increase with the news of his sadistic vengeance plan having been seconded by Roosevelt. It wrote, quote, The feeling of anti-Semitism among Americans was already intense, and news of what the Wall Street Journal was terming the Morgenthau-sponsored policy would inflame it. He added that its eponymous architect was intensely disliked. Of course, it wasn't only Morgenthau's policy. It was Roosevelt's, too. But to this day, it is known to history only as the Morgenthau Plan. Ruling class Gentiles extended to Roosevelt an opportunity to get off the hook if he chose to wiggle out and leave Morgenthau holding the bag. Stimson and Eden objected to Morgenthau because he didn't hide his loathing behind a diplomatic facade, as they did. In other words, Morgenthau was more candid than they could handle. Now let's take a look at the German haters in the American ruling class. The media storm increasingly focused solely on the Judaic Secretary of the Treasury when Morgenthau was only the point man for a mob of Gentile German haters in the American ruling class. Among the most rabid of these non-Judaic haters of Germans was the nationally renowned author Rex Stout. In 1943, in partnership with William Shire and Clifton Fadiman and other Gentile media celebrities, Stout founded a hate group, the Society for the Prevention of World War III, to spread fear about the menace said to be posed by the German people, not only the Nazi dictatorship that ruled over them. The New York Times published an article by Mr. Stout with the revealing title, We Shall Hate or We Shall Fail. Stout argued that if the American people did not hate the German now, that's a direct quote, they would, quote, fail in their efforts to establish a lasting peace, end quote. So in other words, hate equals peace was the formula. 
Stout and his Society of Media Influencers disseminated crackpot pseudo-psychological profiles of the German people as possessed of deeply rooted mental and, quote, nervous disease, end quote. It is a credit to the American people that they were largely unconvinced by Stout and his partners in slime, historian William Shire, highbrow man of letters Clifton Fadiman, and their camp followers. While Morgenthau's so-called Semitic policies are notorious, those of Stout, his cronies, and many other non-Judaic despisers of the German people have been forgotten. This is not accidental. It is a priority of the cryptocracy to disseminate the caricature among adherents of the far right, that it is almost always Jews who are the most evil conspirators, while the Gentiles are at worst mere subordinates, second-fiddle conspirators befuddled by their brilliant puppet masters. Opponents of Talmudism and Zionism have always been defeated by this misdirection because it conceals some of the real perpetrators behind the scenes and almost all of them are non-Judaic. Basically, we can say that Morgenthau was being scapegoated for a hidden gnosis harbored by the American ruling class that in that era was largely Gentile. Now I'd like to address Germans in the American resistance. Expatriate Germans living in exile in the United States did their best to counter hate propaganda by anti-Germans in America. For example, Gerhard Sager had been a Social Democrat member of the Reichstag, the German parliament, during the Weimar Republic. After Hitler came to power, Sager was imprisoned in the Orenburg concentration camp by Hitler. Sager made the point that while some gullible German Judaics as late as 1938 were continuing to attempt to reason with Hitler, many non-Judaic Germans had been working against him since 1933. Having escaped to the U.S., Sager sought to persuade Americans to seek a post-war peace apart from the atmosphere of revenge, citing the countless German enemies of the Nazis who languished in concentration camps. Without a just peace, courageous anti-Hitler Germans, quote, would have to undergo new miseries and new humiliations to expiate the crimes of their Nazi leaders. Another campaigner in the U.S. contra the hate campaign was the German philosopher Paul Tillich. He is nowadays denounced as a liberal theologian, yet the documentary record shows that it was Tillich who, on May 3, 1944, helped to found the Council for a Democratic Germany, lobbying for humanitarian treatment of German civilians after the Allied victory. In their founding statement, the Council stated, quote, It must not be forgotten that the first victims of National Socialism were large numbers of Germans who dared to oppose Hitler. And that's a quote from their publication, A Program for a Democratic Germany, which was printed in Christianity and Crisis magazine, number four, pages three through four. The World Jewish Congress expressed outrage that the Council's founding platform did not include any pledge of penance and reparation. In an October 25, 1944, rejoinder to condemnation by Rabbi Stephen Wise of the American Jewish Congress, 
Tillich stated that he and other council members were surprised that the rabbi was ignorant of the fact that almost all of the members of the council had, quote, fought a life and death struggle with Nazi anti-Semitism before they became victims of the political persecution in Germany, end quote. In 1945, another German emigre group, the American Association for a Democratic Germany, published the pamphlet, They Fought Hitler First, which was a dossier on the resistance, imprisonment, and torture of thousands of German Christians in Dachau and Buchenwald. Activists led by another liberal German theologian, Reinhold Neiber, together with the Scottish-American Columbia University professor Robert MacIver, signed a letter published in the New York Times on June 10, 1945, expressing alarm over, quote, the great and serious danger in the present propaganda attempting to pin responsibility on the German people for the Nazi atrocities, despite the fact that the Germans were the first atrocity victims, end quote. This is an important point, largely now forgotten. Hitler was the enemy of the German people. And we wrote a history titled exactly that, Adolf Hitler, Enemy of the German People. Now, indignation over the Morgenthau-Roosevelt plan, with Roosevelt's responsibility for it omitted, continued to snowball. Dorothy Thompson, a columnist for Newsweek magazine, termed the plan Morgenthau's Carthaginian Peace. She wrote, quote, Have we gone crazy? Hate is an emotion that should be confined to the heart. When it rises to the brain, the result is insanity. End quote. With his friends in the cryptocracy putting the onus of blame on Morgenthau, Roosevelt, like any fleabag politician, saw his chance to backtrack for purposes of gaining political cover. At lunch with Stimson on October 3, 1944, he told the Secretary of War, I've made a false step and I'm trying to work out of it. Morgenthau pulled a boner. I would never bless anything so drastic as the Morgenthau plan, end quote. At that point in the conversation, Stimson confronted the president with the agreement he signed in Quebec. Stimson said, quote, I read him three sentences. Roosevelt was staggered. He had no idea. He told Stimson, how could I have initiated the document? End quote. With Roosevelt having expediently washed his hands of the plan for the time being, Morgenthau's tribulations were only beginning. By October 18th, New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey, the Republican candidate to replace Roosevelt in the forthcoming presidential election, got wind of the fact that Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels intended to exploit the news of Morgenthau's policy in order to inspire the German military to fight harder against what Goebbels termed the Jewish murder plan and the Allied troops who were to impose it. As anticipated in the Nazi newspaper Das Reich of October 21st, Goebbels proclaimed that Morgenthau, the Jewish angel of an Old Testament character, sought to extrude millions of German civilians. Hitler himself indirectly alluded to the Morgenthau-Roosevelt plan in his New Year's speech, quote, We are aware of what the Anglo-American statesmen plan to do with the German Reich, their successful implementation would not only lead to the German Reichs being torn to pieces, 
the transport of 15 to 20 million Germans to foreign countries, the enslavement of the remnants of our Volk, the corruption of our German youth, but it would also, and above all, bring with it the starvation of our masses of millions. Aside from this, you either live in freedom or die in slavery. And quote from Hitler. Well, these were archly cynical words coming from a tyrant who had inflicted most of that oppression on his own people as a result of his Nazi doctrine and his egomania. Nonetheless, alarm began to spread across America that in Germany, news of Morgenthau's plan, quote, had harmed our boys at the front, which, if true would make Secretary of the Treasury Morgenthau complicit in the deaths of American troops. So, at this point, Morgenthau was reported to be in a near panic, beseeching Roosevelt and Stimson to issue denials. Stimson refused to make a statement, and Roosevelt could not be reached. On November 3rd, Governor Dewey addressed an election rally in Madison Square Garden. He charged that the plan for disposing of the German people after the war reinvigorated the Nazi armies, extending to them a morale boost equal to what Dewey called 10 fresh German divisions. America was paying for it with the blood of our fighting men, said Dewey. And you can find that in the New York Times of November 5th, page 42. In spite of the flap, Roosevelt was reelected, though his popular vote margin was the slimmest since Woodrow Wilson's reelection in 1916. You're listening to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History Podcast. We're located at www.revisionisthistory.org. Now, let's proceed. By March, the two-faced Roosevelt was back in Morgenthau's corner. In a private conversation in the White House with his son-in-law, Lieutenant Colonel John Bodiger, the latter told FDR the Allies had to ensure that the German people receive enough food. So his son-in-law had some remnant of humanity, telling his father-in-law that the Allies had to ensure that the German people receive enough food. Roosevelt replied, Let them have soup kitchens. Let their economy sink. You don't want them to starve, his son-in-law countered. Why not? Roosevelt shot back. And you can find that in Mayer's biography on pages 431 to 432. On Halloween night, 1950, parenthetically, Bodiger, the son-in-law of Roosevelt, either jumped to his death or was pushed from a seventh-floor hotel room in Manhattan. This defenestration is reminiscent of the death three years later of U.S. Army scientist Frank Olson, acting chief of special operations at Fort Detrick, Maryland, and a liaison to the CIA's technical services staff, which gave him access to the agency's clandestine operations. On November 28, 1953, someone threw Olson out the window of his room on the 13th floor of the Statler Hotel in Manhattan. Okay. By April 1945, Morgenthau had recovered his resolve and was again the single-minded zealot. He was now contemplating a book on how to starve the Germans. In Warm Springs, Georgia, he told Roosevelt, quote, I would like to write a chapter on how 60 million Germans can feed themselves. End quote. Roosevelt replied, quote, I think that is fine. You go ahead and do it. I think it is a grand idea. End quote from Franklin Roosevelt from Mayer's book, page 444. 
Roosevelt died shortly after this conversation. Morgenthau repeatedly pestered his successor, Harry S. Truman, to reinstitute the plan. All the Secretary of the Treasury received from the new command and Commander-in-Chief was a presidential directive to General Eisenhower, known as Joint Chiefs of Staff 1067, abbreviated as JCS 1067, which was an occupation statute that decreed that Germany will not be occupied for the purpose of liberation, but as a defeated enemy nation. Now, I, end, I quote from that again. Germany will not be occupied for the purpose of liberation, but as a defeated enemy nation. In other words, the fate of the German people under Allied occupation was to be punishment, not freedom, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. This was not an act of liberation. This was a remnant of Morgenthau's vengeance, though it lacked his most ferocious objectives, the flooding of Germany's mines, dismantling of all factories and industry in the Saar and Ruhr regions, and the reduction of the people to the status of stoop laborers, scratching a subsistence existence in what had been, until recently, the most scientifically advanced nation on earth. One aspect of the Morgenthau-Roosevelt scheme was implemented. In the years before 1948, in the much-publicized Berlin airlift, many thousands of Germans were intentionally left to starve. And you can find documentation on that in James Bach's book, Crimes and Mercies, The Fate of German Civilians Under Allied Occupation, 1944-1950. It's a wonderful book. You spell the author's last name B-A-C-Q-U-E, Crimes and Mercies. According to Samuel Irving Rosenman, who worked as an aide to Truman, quote, Morgenthau was temperamentally unsuited to Truman's style of operation. Truman would not suffer pressure. End quote. And consequently, Truman forced Morgenthau out of office. Rosenman, who was also Judaic, was dispatched to accept Morgenthau's resignation as head of the treasury. For Henry Morgenthau Jr., it was an insult never to be forgiven. Quote from Meyer, years later, Truman told his press secretary, Jonathan Daniels, Morgenthau didn't know SHIT from apple butter. He's a blockhead, a nut. I wonder why FDR kept him around. And that's on pages 467 to 469 of Mayer's biography. Truman, though an obedient workhorse for Zionism, occasionally chafed under the weight of his harness, uttering snide remarks such as Jesus Christ couldn't please them when he was on earth, so how could anyone expect that I would have any luck? Occasionally, Truman's criticism was a general observation on human nature. Quote, I fear very much that the Jews are like all underdogs. When they get on top, they are just as intolerant and cruel as the people were to them when they were underneath. End quote from President Harry S. Truman. But who was Truman to judge anyone's cruelty or character? In August, this fiend in human form burned alive 150,000 civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Psycho-arsonist Roosevelt had set Tokyo afire the previous March. Furthermore, Truman deliberately called off nationalist forces who were closing in on Mao so the communists would win in China, then sent U.S. troops to fight them in a no-win so-called police action in Korea. The post-war order comprised of the Atlantic Charter, the United Nations, NATO, and the European Union 
all pretend to hold civilians sacred while damning their adversaries for war crimes against helpless civilians. Their own crimes, the crimes of the Allies against Axis civilians, don't seem to register with these disgusting, hypocritical oppressors and blabbermouths. Like the lives of Palestinians sacrificed on the altar of Israeli racism, they are less than zero, unworthy of commemoration, their killing unmarked by internationally observed anniversaries, solemn ceremonies, or publicity. The plan is to forget them. In his post-war years, and for the remainder of his life, Morgenthau put his considerable energies at the service of the Israeli state. He died in 1967 at age 75. His oldest son and namesake, Henry III, became an executive with all three major television networks and PBS Public Television. For 34 years, from 1975 to 2009, Morgenthau's youngest son, Robert, served as the powerful United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, retiring at age 89. The German people eventually rebuilt their nation into an economic powerhouse and recovered their physical health, but lost their collective minds under the weight of the mark of Cain, which they had been made to psychologically bear for the crimes of their enemy, Adolf Hitler and his cabal. You know, folks, the United States government has a long history, and I'm sorry to say it, of attacking foreign heads of state as terrorist dictators who target civilians, while our government simultaneously engages in its own terrorism against the wrong kind of civilians. For example, and it's probably the most terrible example, in March 1945, almost six months before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Franklin Roosevelt, one of the heroes of the Great War mythos, or also known as the Good War, ordered General Curtis LeMay to implement LeMay's plan of attack on civilians in Japan. On March 9th through 10th, American bombers were dispatched to intentionally create a firestorm that would wipe out 16 square miles of the city of Tokyo burning alive 100,000 Japanese children, women, and men. Hundreds of thousands of napalm explosives were dropped from more than 300 B-29 Super Fortress bombers on the densely packed, mostly wooden city. This year is the 78th anniversary of that Holocaust, and like the Inferno in Dresden, it will be barely remembered by the media if at all, in spite of the fact that according to the U.S. government's own strategic bombing survey, and we quote, probably more persons lost their lives by fire at Tokyo in a six-hour period than any time in the history of man, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, we need revisionist history more than ever that phrase happens to be a swear word to the right wing and to so-called conservatives, although they're not conservatives because they can serve very little, if anything. Revisionist history simply means that you are always willing to revise your view of the past based on new information, whether it's from diaries, letters, archival discoveries, or what have you. History is not cast in marble and we should be open to its revision for the advancement of knowledge contra 
cancel culture, which is our ambition here at Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History podcast and on our website, Revisionist History, www.revisionisthistory.org. It's through your donations, your purchase of our books, recordings, and newsletters that we are able to continue our research. You can reach us at Independent History and Research, Box 849, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, 83816, or online. And also, you can read us in our Substack columns by Googling Michael Hoffman's Revelation of the Method Substack. This broadcast is copyright 2023 by Independent History and Research. All rights reserved.